Welcome to the Computational Antitrust Podcast. My name is Thibaut Schrepel. I'm a faculty affiliate at Stanford University Codex Center and the creator of the Computational Antitrust Project, exploring how legal informatics can benefit antitrust law. The project gathers over 50 competition agencies and 35 academics in the advisory board. Each month, we publish an academic article on the subject of computational antitrust. You may find them at computationalantitrust.com. Today, I'm thrilled to be receiving three gentlemen who wrote a paper for us entitled Time for a New Antitrust Era, Refocusing Antitrust Law to Invigorate Competition in the 21th Century. First, we have Sandro Lira, a visiting researcher at the MIT Connection Science. We also have Robert Mahari, a GD candidate at Harvard Law School and president of the Harvard Law and Technology Society. And last but not least, we have Alex Pentland, who is the director of the MIT Connection Science, who also helped with the creation of the MIT Media Lab, as well as the Media Lab Asia in India. He is a member of the Computational Antitrust Advisory Board, and lastly, one of the most cited computational scientists in the entire world. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here and welcome to this podcast. My first question will be very simple. Could you summarize your paper in about two minutes and explain what is the main takeaway? Sure. Uh, I wonder, would it be useful if, if Sandy gave like a little bit of background on how we ended up even doing, you know, computational antitrust at MIT um, before we dive into that? That would be great. Yes. Sandy, would you mind? Uh, no, that's, that's, that's great. So um, thank you. So it might be asked, why is MIT doing antitrust law and thinking about that? And, and my group, Connection Science, is part of this broader thing, which is the Institute for Data Systems and Society. And, and law is such a part of these new systems to shape it, to give it uh, ground, to, uh, to regulate it, obviously. And most of law is not very acquainted with the dynamics and details and possibilities of computation. And as a consequence, we've been very involved in, in law uh, of necessity. So I was part of the discussion that turned into GDPR. I've been advisor to the American Bar Association. Uh, and we started a computational law report to give a forum for lawyers to, to think about these things. And that's at law.mit.edu. Um, and that's sort of why people came together. People like Robert and Sandro came together to really think about these things. Yes, and if I may, uh, the the computational report is actually listed on our website. It's a, it's a not only fascinating but also mind blowing to lawyers. So I really advise everyone to go and indeed uh, law.mit.edu. Uh, that's a great place where to start and where to end up when it comes to computational law. So please go ahead. Thank you. So Robert. Yeah, so, so to cover the, you know, the basics of the paper at a high level, you know, U.S. antitrust law again and again has responded to these changing needs of the economy. So, you know, in the 1800s, we had trusts and the Sherman Act was passed to address those. Then there was this wave of mergers, the Clayton Act addressed those. And so really, we came from a place where we asked ourselves in the digital economy, what does antitrust need to do? And we came up with two kind of primary prescriptions. The first is related to monopoly power under the Sherman Act. And... Right now, the Sherman Act is focused and judges are focused on market share and price control. But we realize that, you know, more and more you can exert anti-competitive influence long before you have a majority market share or before charging, if ever, monopoly prices. And the way you can do that is through controlling data. And so we advocate for this expanded definition of monopoly power to include data control. Um, and then we, we outline types of data control that are less likely to undermine competition and specifically data trusts, and we can get those to those later. 
The second thing we came up with is based on analysis of networks and a lot of empirical data, we realized that, you know, this almost intuitive idea, let's go after the biggest transactions when we have M&A and let's stop them. Let's stop the concentration of like market share is misguided. And really what we need to worry about is today's dominant agents buying up tomorrow's competition and, you know, to, totally under the radar because a lot of these transactions are quite small. And so we thought, thought a lot about this concept of fitness and Sandro can explain that much better than I can. But the idea that, you know, if we want to break out of kind of anti-competitive feedback loops, we should focus on the market as a whole and not just the biggest transactions. So at a high level, that's the paper. Yes, and, and, and that's something that sometimes we tend to forget and we tend to think that dominance equals monopoly power and vice versa, but it might not necessarily be the case. You may have monopoly power because you control some data uh, and, and yet not being in a dominant position according to antitrust criteria, which is in the US to have more than 50% of the market. Uh, and so indeed, I think it's very important to keep that in mind. And so that, that leads me to actually discussing the, the first part of the paper in which you, you wrote that data control is monopoly power, or at least that it can be. And I'm wondering if that claim will be more and more accurate in, in, in the years ahead of us, or if on the contrary, it will become less so. And, and there, I have to confess that my non-technical expertise is leading me to be confused. What I hear is that the more data, the better, especially if you want to train unsupervised machine learning. Uh, and actually, you need quite a lot of data, millions, uh, not just a couple hundreds. So in that, in that regard, I very much understand that data control equals uh, power. But I also read about all of those new types of algorithms, such as uh, less than one shot algorithm that may allow you to train an algorithm with very with less data than what would have been the case five years ago. So I'm wondering in which direction are we going? Is it is it again more data uh, necessary uh, for tomorrow's competition or can we assume that it will become less and less so? So in part, the answer depends on how seriously people take our paper, right? And there are different ways of handling data ownership uh, in the future. If we move towards a model where data ownership is decentralized, either because we give individual users, a la GDPR, ownership over their data, or because we take this data trust model seriously, well, then it's harder to use your data control to exert anti-competitive influence. Um, and so we'll see. The answer is a little bit, we'll see. With regard to this question about zero-shot learning, most of those techniques rely on pre-trained models that have been trained on massive quantities of data and then do some sort of fine tuning on top of it. So the key question is if everybody has access to the pre-trained uh, models like BERT in NLP, like various you know, machine vision learning uh, models, well then that levels the playing field. If however, the pre-training is proprietary um, and right now this wasn't for antitrust reasons, but GTP3 is an example of kind of a non-shared pre-trained model, well, then whoever has access to the pre-training also has the ability to extract insights that others can't. So we'll see. Um, but I don't know, Sandro, do you want to weigh in on this too? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that, of course, data control is not only about gaining insights from machine learning, but there's many other cases where, where access to data is very important. So um, another case that we mentioned in the paper is about network effects in communication networks. So take uh, ride-sharing platforms as an example. When you want to call a car that drives you from A to B, you want to be on a platform with many drivers. And if you're a driver, you want to be on a platform with many customers. So the more customers the, the platform has, the more valuable it becomes. And in fact, you can show that this effect is super linear. 
This is also known as Metcalfe's law. So if you have twice the amount of data, uh, twice the amount of customer, or, or in our case, twice the amount of data, um, your, your company is worth about four times as much. So this then begs the important question that, that many take for granted, which is why should the platform and not the user own the rights to this data? Because you see, when, whenever you request a ride, say you're on Uber and you request a ride that you would like to go from A to B, what you really do is you're creating data. You're creating data that contains information about where you want to go. But in fact, you can also imagine a world where users and not the platform owns this data. So rather than Uber having rights to your data, it could be you. And then a lot of interesting things are possible. So we can imagine that there is a general right sharing network and you as the user decide to broadcast that information on that network. And then you decide which of the different companies have the rights to see that data. And you can decide that this can be Uber, this can be Lyft, but it can also be the local taxi company or some other emerging uh, startups that, that can compete. And you see that this way, just by shifting the, the ownership of the data, you can sort of uh, get rid of these asymmetric data control. And I would say that's yet another example where data ownership plays a huge role in whether you either promote or you prevent monopolies. So let me just add one more example to what Sandra said, which is, you know, the data could also be held by a union of drivers and that they share with the various platforms on uh, sort of need to know, which would be a much more notion, uh, powerful notion of data ownership by the creators. And that's where this notion of data trust comes in. So, Yes, indeed, because should it be the case, then you will need to discuss what is the infrastructure behind that union, right? For them to be able to to host the data yeah. in a way which is secured. And, and, and so, and, and I do want to address that issue uh, it's not an issue, the potential of the data trust, because again, I, I do not find many papers in the field of antitrust discussing all that, but I find it fascinating that indeed the, the reason the case use of the data may actually uh, imply that data is more or less essential. Uh, but, but you mentioned also, Robert, that the model that you may be using is also very important. And that leads me to another part of the paper in which you say that in your view, certain types of data control how to be viewed, viewed as anti-competitive per se, because you write that the insights that you can derive from certain sets of data uh, can create highly effective barrier to competition. So I'm wondering which type of data do you have in mind, uh, knowing, of course, as you just said, that the case use may actually be important in, in the answer. And also, um, do you think that data control is more relevant at the end of the day than, say, the ability to capture more and new data or the data infrastructure, which is which is behind it. So I think you know there there are multiple facets to this, but the, the main thing that we're worried about is this you know secret proprietary data set that you hold outright that's in your company, and the key thing is that's completely inauditable. We have no way to know what you're really doing with the data. And our point of view is that you know the nice thing about the data trust model and you know emerging techniques like federated learning is that they provide some degree of auditability. And so we question, you know, if you're using your data for completely legitimate business purposes, then why not put it somewhere where we can see what you're doing with the data? And we can have the necessary kind of controls in place so that we see what you're doing, but not necessarily how exactly you're doing it. And we kind of preserve your ability to compete legitimately. And so, you know, you ask what kind of data we're worried about. 
it's it's less so the type of data. I mean, so, you know, not all data is created equal, and it would be silly to say, you know, any 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 data control at all could be used to uh, you know create barriers to entry. It's more about how you're holding the data and kind of the spirit of of how you're holding the data. And a lot this recurring theme in the paper is why don't we have an incentive system that in, encourages you to hold the data in a way that makes auditability easy, that makes things transparent, that makes it less likely for you to abuse the data that you're holding. And frankly, that gives others at least some ability to, to also use the data and in a way that kind of benefits the market as a whole. Uh, Robert mentioned data trusts, federated learning. So the thing that it holds back most people's thinking is this idea that you have to actually hold in a single place the data in order to be able to do things. But uh, modern AI, modern data techniques allow you uh, to derive insights remotely. So in other words, I hold my data maybe on my phone. It does some computation that I control and I contribute an insight or a statistic back to a central uh, uh, authority like Google. And as a consequence, it gives me back a way to tune the performance of my phone. But he can't tell what's on my phone. And that's like this single shot uh, learning because there's this background model, which I control on my device. Uh, and that's called federated learning. And, and it's not inefficient. For instance, uh, Google recently announced that they're moving to this type of model for all their mobile AI. And it's a very fast growing area. Uh, the fact that you're sending things back and forth like that gives you the chance to be able to audit from your device what's being asked of you and what you're contributing and what are you getting back. And you could be part of several different uh, federations. And uh, uh, the legal term that's sort of a general term for this is uh, a trust or data trust. But another way to think about it is this is like a cooperative or like a, a, like a, like a labor union, gig workers sharing data to make themselves uh, uh, better, make their jobs better, pay better. Uh, and that's a very familiar type of thing in the law and in society. It is communities coming together to control resources like labor, uh, uh, credit unions control money. And so having these sort of trust to control data of the community for particular purposes uh, is very natural in, in society. What would be required from, let's say, the big tech companies if we wanted to implement that? Is the implication that they should redesign the entire business model and the infrastructure? And my second sub-question, which is related, is what is the probability that we will see, we will see such a data trust being implemented in, let's say, 10 years or 15 years from now? Um, so, you know, we've already helped, for instance, Fidelity Investments and uh, the banks uh, move to this sort of model. It's called Akoya.com. So, so that helps you move data around, investments around, without sharing personal data. I mentioned that Google has moved to this thing called Flock, F-L small O-C, which is a distributed model where the data doesn't leave your phone. Um, so it's not a hard thing to do, right? And in fact, actually, Eurostat and the many of the European central things out of Brussels have committed to moving to these sorts of things. Uh, it's just a different way to think about it where you're sharing insights rather than sharing data. And then, and then the question is sharing whose data? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of effort now around the world to really refine this notion of data trust and data ownership. For instance, our group is working with Consumer Union and the California Privacy Law to really operationalize the idea that a union 
can give people control over their data because that's in the law. And what you need to do is a series of test cases to be able to clarify the mechanism, the right, the limits to it. Uh, and so that's what we're, we're about. Okay, so it is likely to, to be implemented. Long story short, which is good news. Please go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I, I don't think this was the regulator's intention, but a lot of the privacy laws talk about collection of personal data. Well, if you're, you're not collecting personal data uh, under these models, the personal data stays with the individual. It's a little bit, it feels a little bit like a workaround, but I think that increasingly there may be an incentive just in an effort to comply with privacy laws um, to, to not collect this data, to not hold this data, to not have to deal with all of the overhead that comes with it. And so there's this incentive that's completely unrelated to antitrust and all of that to say, well, you know what, let's, let's forget about collecting data. It's, it's a pain. And let's focus on using data that someone else holds to gather insights. And, and it can be a real win-win across multiple dimensions, antitrust being only one of them. Um, and I think we're quite involved in, like Sandy mentioned, lots of efforts to, to operationalize it. And, and, you know, as you said, not any data is born equaled. And, and that's something that's a great insight from the paper that I want to discuss with you, in which you actually explained that you've been analyzing four decades of U.S. private equity data. And I uh, was wondering if you could first explain, because I think it's very central in your paper, what is the law of proportional growth? Um, what is the fitness of a company, which will lead us to, to discuss the type of data which matters the most? And, and then how are you putting all of those elements together when uh, applied to antitrust? Yeah, so, well, in the, in the context of firm sizes, proportional growth is, is also known as Gibrat's law. And it, it states that the absolute growth of a firm is proportional to its size, uh, which is fairly well established. But then you have a proportional constant, which is essentially a normalized uh, percentage growth rate. And technically speaking, that's what we call the fitness. But in, in more qualitative terms, the, the fitness is just a measure of how fast the firm is growing, how innovative it is, and how well it able is to compete. So really, how, how fit is it in the, in the market? And a um, key insight that we derive based on network science is that it's rather the, the growth rate distributions rather than the size distributions that are relevant to predict monopolies. So to, to sustain an economy where there is no firm that, that completely dominates, it is important to have a lot of high fitness firms which are able to compete with one another. It, it becomes more problematic when there is only a handful or, or maybe even just one company that exhibits high growth. On, on the other hand, if you have a lot of firms with high growth, uh, you can show mathematically that competition will always predictably emerge. So back to the data analysis that you mentioned, we have, we have analyzed um, acquisitions of, of startups, both in the US and across the globe and also across different industries. And we could find that, well, perhaps not surprisingly, it is the high fitness companies that are acquired much more frequently. And this is very problematic from an antitrust perspective, since a lot of these acquisitions involve young companies that could compete later on if, if they were allowed to, to grow more. But these acquisitions gradually deplete this, this pool of high fitness firms, and they often go unnoticed. So I would say that the, the main message of, of that part of the paper is that regulators should really focus on sustaining a high fitness, high growth environment, rather than just focusing on the few largest firms. The, the largest firms are, are just the symptoms of an economy that is showing an unhealthy, lacking degree of competition. And um, if you do not address the problem more sustainably, 
new and even larger firms will uh, eventually emerge. And, and regarding that, your analysis is really dynamic. It's really about growth and, and you know, how you see that evolving over time, which is something very new for the field of antitrust, which is really static by definition. What we do is that we take pictures of the market and then we work on the basis of those pictures for a few years. But my question is, is then, as you say, uh, height fitness firms are the most likely to be acquired. So my question is, how hard is, is it for, uh, let's say, a big tech company to evaluate the fitness of a startup? And how hard is it for then a competition agency to do the same? Well, I would say back to Robert's point, it depends a bit on, on how seriously you, you want to take our paper. So the the underlying mathematics is, is quite well defined and you can specifically define the, the fitness as the, the growth rate of a firm. And then of course there's, there's different proxies for, for how you can measure such a fitness. So I would say in, in principle, given that we, there's a lot of big data out there that that matches or that that allows us to measure in, in great depth how, how firms interact. In principle, we, we could imagine a world where where you take this very literally and really come up with a type of early warning system allowing you to to predict the emergence of, of monopolies very early on. I would say uh, in, in slightly more simpler terms, you can also just extract the, the message of the paper more qualitatively and just say, okay, you, you need to make sure that you, you have a lot of new startups, new firms that you allow to develop and you make sure that they are not um, all acquired early on because it's exactly these high fitness startups. And again, you can see fitness here in more qualitative, intuitive terms. And you want, you just want to make sure that these high fitness firms uh, remain independently and are not acquired early on because later on, they will be the ones that can actually compete. And so then you do not have to interfere and, and break up the larger firms once, once it's already too late. And, and so. And again, where it, it would be something new for the field of antitrust is that generally speaking, what you do is that you look at the acquirer and the target and preventing the, those companies from growing further is will, act, will actually not be uh, solving the issue. As the, and, then, and therefore, what we might be doing is then indeed making sure that there are some uh, high fitness startups still you know, acting freely on the market. And so you described three solutions and there are two that I would like to discuss with you. But still, for, for the record, the first you say is to create a progressive tax that is related to the number of users a company has and the amount of data about these users. And you say that it might be a way to prevent uh, or to discourage concentration via taxation. And so that is an idea that should be discussed. The second idea you say is that uh, we should actually discourage data control. You write that a company that controls a significant portion of a relevant market uh, but choose to actually silo the data in a, ways, in a way which is uh, auditable, maybe presumed not to use the data in a way which is anti-competitive. And this immediately made me think about the, the trust project, which was recently started by the European Commission, apparently will be implemented in, in a year from now. And so I was wondering again, if you could explain that idea of the data trust and how it would work in the context of, of antitrust law. And if I may, you do mention that new computational techniques such as uh, federating learning could help for the purpose. So I'm curious to hear um, how competition agencies from all over the world could actually take your idea and implement your idea in the weeks ahead of us. So, so I can say something and then I think uh, Sandy can jump in too. But, you know, the central theme here is 
it makes a lot of sense not to do case by case review, but instead to define a set of criteria. And you know, we, we need to think long and hard what those criteria are, where we can say with relatively high degrees of confidence, if you meet, if your transaction, if your behavior meets these criteria, it's unlikely that you're going to undermine competition. And then we simply say, if you, if you follow these prescriptions, if you meet these criteria, you're going to be exposed to reduced scrutiny. We do this today. So if you look at the pre-merger review process, we have a set of transaction sizes. I don't think that this is how we think of them, but we say, well, if you're under these transaction size thresholds, then we're not, you know, you don't have to file pre-merger review. Well, what does that do? That incentivizes you to stay under those thresholds. Um, and so we, we found that the thresholds on transaction size are the wrong kind of criteria, but the idea is really sound that you de define criteria and give people kind of a way out. And so what we're saying in, in the part that you're talking about is, and, and we've talked about this before in the interview, you know, when you use data trusts to, you know, make the data auditable, to make it accessible to others, it's more likely that you're, you're not going to be then using this for some sort of illegitimate purpose, right? Because it is now auditable. Um, it's also more likely that others can use the data and, and gain the insight. So then the kind of monopoly entry barrier issue is reduced. Um, so even without necessarily auditing each and every data trust, we can define a set of criteria and, and have some degree of confidence that um, if, if you follow those criteria and those prescriptions, you're not going to be anti-competitive. And then of course, we still need case-by-case -case review. We're not saying like, you know, get rid of that entirely. We're just saying instead of having, you know, these, these thresholds on transaction size, we can take that idea a lot further and, and probably make it more effective. Um, I don't know, Sandy, if you want to talk a little bit more about data trusts and federated learning. Well, just to help people understand that idea. So imagine that there's a firm that's being acquired but what, what at one level, what you're concerned with is control of the data. Uh, and uh, a firm can make aggregate data available for sharing sale to all comers. So an example might be, just to sort of illustrate the ideas, is a, a telco could say, how many people use uh, the mobile phone in each census block, okay? So that data is, uh, you know, when done correctly, uh, provably contains no individual level data, okay? But it's actually very useful for figuring out foot traffic or uh, predicting uh, automobile traffic or things like that. And so, so uh, it could potentially make this available not only to uh, the acquirer, uh, but to other people. So that would give the acquirer no special advantage with respect to insights uh, over uh, the data, and that they wouldn't be able to go in and look at individual level data, which is not shareable because that was you didn't give consent to uh, give that data to other people, and in some regimes you can't give that consent in a blanket way. So, so um, the idea is 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 not to allow, as Robert was saying, the sort of secret repositories of data that grow and grow and grow. Um, for a period of time, I was on uh, one of Google's advisory boards and, and uh, advised them to break up the company, which they eventually did, but, but they hated me for this. But the reason uh, I suggested going to Alphabet was to put those sorts of barriers between the different parts of Alphabet. Nest should not be sharing individual level data with Google and vice versa. But sort of population area things, aggregate types of things, uh, if they're available to other competitors, don't have this anti-monopoly, uh, this monopoly sort of characteristic. When it comes to anti-competitive behaviors in the field of antitrust, 
sometimes we take the technology into account and other times we don't for reasons that I ignore. So when it comes to tying, then the technology is relevant. Oh, you tied an operating system with a brother, it might be anti-competitive. When it comes to rebates, we don't care. If you do rebates regarding computers, it's the same practice as doing rebates for bananas, for instance. And a field in which the technology is never analyzed, although it sounds curious, is actually merger control, or at least not when it comes to the notification. Uh, and because the threshold, as you explained in the paper, and as we know, are related to, in the US, the transaction and or the size of the companies. And in Europe, it's just the size uh, of the target and, so, and, and, and the acquirer. And for that reason, it, it might be indeed a good, not only a good idea, but also necessary that we take the technology behind the transaction into account in the way we assess merger control. And I want now to move on to the, to the third solution that you propose, in which you say that the idea would be to, uh, to discourage the fitness concentration by introducing new criteria for merger and acquisitions involving high fitness companies uh, that are unlikely to violate antitrust law. And, and there you recommend that the FTC and the DOJ take into account the relative fitness of the two merging entities. And, and as you explain in a paper, it's the, the um, uh, growth uh, revenue, it's the user growth uh, and other relevant metrics. And that the consequence will be that firms that structure a, a deal in a way that minimizes the concentration of fitness could be excluded from fitting requirements. And so regarding that idea, and we've been discussing that a little bit, you do mention that creating a data trust would be one solution. And I'm wondering if there are other things that companies could do that will actually address that uh, potential issue in your views. So here there's a, an element of case by case in that, you know, we, we can't make blanket statements that apply to technology companies and mining companies just the same. So when we, when we design these criteria, we need to be somewhat careful. Um, but just to give you an example, like a flavor for, for what we might mean, there, there are increasingly, we, we've found examples of, you know, acquisitions that aren't really acquisitions, where, where two companies come together, they collaborate for some period of time, maybe the, the acquirer takes a, a minority, uh, you know, position, something like that. But really the idea is we'll come together, we'll benefit from each other's experience, and then we'll move apart. Well, that raises very few antitrust concerns, um, you know, a model like that. And, and frankly, it seems like that could actually increase competition in the market as a whole. Um, so, so let's encourage that kind of transaction. And, and, you know, if we can, we need to spend time thinking about it and all the ways it can go wrong. But if we can define these kinds of transaction models, um, in addition to things you can do, like siloing your data, if it's relevant, um, like maybe divesting from, you know, some technology, whatever it is, if we can define those criteria, then like we said a couple of times, we can create an incentive structure that just nudges people, nudges companies in the right direction and, and tends to ensure kind of a competitive marketplace as a whole. Um, again, it doesn't replace case-by-case -case review entirely, um, but we're already nudging companies with the, with the transaction thresholds. So we might as well think of, of better nudges um, and, and better criteria. Um, I don't know if you, uh, Sandra or Sandy, want to jump in on this too. Well, that's sort of the idea behind uh, uh, the tax proposal also that you mentioned, right? So, you know, the OECD and, uh, is proposing a digital services tax, and this is sort of a broad, uh, quite contentious uh, discussion. But you can imagine that the digital services tax uh, is proportional to the, uh, the fitness of the firm, or so how fast it's growing, or the... Uh, the square of the market share, so the square of the number of people that you have, it's the Metcalfe's law sort of idea to it. And what that would do is sort of handicap 
these uh, disproportionately powerful firms uh, and advantage younger firms that are, are growing. So, um, and, and it also gives a certain motivation to uh, the digital services tax that isn't, isn't there at a moment. So it's, a, it's an idea that I think ought to be discussed at least. Indeed, and, and an idea once again that takes the dynamism of market into account, which, which um, has been explored a little bit in, in the field of antitrust, especially by some scholars such as David Teese and a few others, uh, but which, in my view, unfortunately, is being put aside for now. Um, and so all that leads me to the final and impossible question, and I realize how impossible it is. And so here it is. Where do you think we will be in five or 10 years? I'll give you the choice. Uh, from now, in terms of what is possible to achieve in the field of antitrust, thanks to computational tools. And as we've been discussing, it's not only the tool in technical sense, but you also need the, the legal framework and uh, the procedures, knowing that, of course, in 10 years, I will be here to, to, to prove you wrong or to say that you are a genius and a true visionaire. So please go ahead. Well, let me start. So, so um, you know, part of this depends on having the tools to really address the, the dynamics and the data aspects to this. And Sandro has sort of led the way for doing the technical econometric sort of analysis of how the data results in monopoly. So bringing the dynamics to it. And Robert has pointed out a number of the ways that existing tools, existing review can be uh, just augmented a little bit, like to look at the technology when you do uh, a an acquisition review, things like that, changing from market share to sort of a fitness measure. Um, but I think all of these also depend on this notion of data trust, on re really resolving in a very concrete way questions of data ownership and data access. Uh, and so, for instance, can you merge with something or acquire something and then make sure that you don't have anti-competitive control over their data by making the aggregate data, the non-individual level data, available more generally. And, and that's really, to me, the, the sort of data trust question. Uh, and it's very um, encouraging to me to see that there's an EU project on it, that it's implicitly read into the uh, California privacy law, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think uh, uh, exactly what you said, but, uh, or additionally, uh, to your point, exactly that, um, as we have more and more access to big data, real-time data, I think we can ideally more and more track these things more quickly and then and then interact uh, or interfere more quickly. I think that's going to be a, an important aspect as well. So so more real-time more real-time control rather than acting after the fact. Do you think we go fast enough in that direction, or well, what would you like to be implemented in you know in the coming weeks? Well, I think one thing that I would like to, or I'm curious to see what, what happens over the next uh, few years is, can we see a, a type of culture shift? So to give the analogy to, to maybe, a color, uh, you know, um, or let's just say data control, a couple of years ago, it was actually fashionable for firms to advertise how much data they own and how much data control they have. And we see now a, a quick shift where it's always almost becoming a social responsibility or it's it's good um the, the the firm wants to maintain a good image by showing how responsibly it is handling its data and i'm just curious to see whether we can nurture this culture even more this this 
responsibility with data and then maybe even further with with uh, um, monopolistic tendencies such that it becomes uncool to be a monopoly of, of some sort so I'm, I'm i'm curious to see whether we can uh, observe such uh, shifts in in the society as a whole but but you know i've, I've read a survey conducted by wired uh, and i think it was published last year already and they were showing that the number one reason why people are not using Facebook amongst non-Facebook users is not because the service isn't cool or because the wall isn't as good as, you know, the one on, on TikTok or whatever. It's because of the trust issue, because people do not trust Facebook for the way by which they handle the data. That's the number one reason. So it might be that indeed the shift that you are describing is already happening. Uh, but of course, it, the question is to, you know, what is the, the proportion and is that a real societal movements were just something amongst uh, a few people. Uh, but indeed, I'm very curious as well. So let us monitor all that together. And please, Robert. So so I, I think to answer the, the question you, you asked a couple of times, you know, are we moving in the right direction? I think in general, in terms of what we can do, in terms of the, the you know, ways, we're, we're becoming aware of more ways to handle data responsibly, um, to think of these ways, to develop tools, you know, like Sandro um, is working on to kind of detect monopolistic behavior early. It's an open question whether the relevant agencies are, are going to you know, learn to use those tools and take them seriously. Um, but we're, I think we're optimistic and, and at MIT, we tend to be optimistic. So um, I, I think we're moving in the right direction. But then I wanted to throw out, you, know, you said I could pick the time period. So in the past, antitrust has looked backward, right? And, and we were talking about past wrongs and past harms. We're advocating for something more real time. Maybe in the future, we can look into the future, you know, look forward and simulate how, how is a certain merger going to affect competition months and years down the line. I think that would be kind of the big breakthrough, right? When we, when we can control the past, present, and future um, and, and simulate. And I think that increasingly we're, we're developing the tools to do that. Um, so, so that's what, what I'm excited about. Um, yeah, leave it there. Well, same. And, and, and also worried to some degree because the idea that we can create, you know, and come up to the theory of everything is actually far from being reached. And, um, on the one hand, I'm very pleased to see that uh, we may have the tool to to simulate the effect of, of merger control, something that we are not doing very much, and that's you know very positive. On the other, it will be, in my view, a mistake to think that we know for sure what will be the effect of a merger. But it, again, it doesn't mean that you know because it's not perfect that we shouldn't actually try and 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 increase our analysis. Sandy, you want to say something? The thing to keep in mind is weather prediction. Thirty years ago, it was hit or miss with weather prediction. Today, you can look at a storm in the Pacific and predict what the effect will be in Boston within an, a couple of hours. And, and that's the result of this competition of all these huge data AI systems coming together to give you probabilities. It's not perfect, it can never be perfect. But it's a lot better than people thought and it's usefully good. So you can really sort of use it to be able to tune systems, to get people out of harm's way, things like that. And I think that's quite reasonable in this sort of digital world. We will have the data available to do this. We do have some of the scientific breakthroughs to be able to understand these things. Uh, and it won't be perfect, but it could be an awful pretty good. Well, I think it's a perfect way to end this podcast. It's reasonable to be optimist. Um, that's something I hope we, we can hope keep all keep in mind. Uh, thank you very much. It has been a fascinating discussion. Um, and um, well, I hope to see you soon in person and take care until then. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you.